And I do invite you to take your devices or Bibles out and uh, turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. Now, we began a sermon series last week entitled Facing Narcissism. In week one, we discussed facing narcissism in a narcissistic culture, a culture that is extremely self-absorbed, one in which it is all about me. Now, today, in week two, we're shifting our focus to the church in a discussion entitled Facing Narcissism in the Church. Now, narcissistic people are self-centered individuals who lack empathy for others and are unable to recognize the pain of others. Such people believe that they deserve special favors, but feel no obligation whatsoever to return them. The narcissistic person demands attention and admiration and has trouble accepting criticism. A narcissist has a grandiose sense of self-importance. They are better, they're smarter, they're more talented, they're more deserving, uh, they're more godly and more holy and more correct on various issues than others are. And people who typically lean toward narcissism tend to have superficial relationships with others. That means in their marriages, with their spouse. That means with their children. That means with significant others. It means family members. It means coworkers and friends. And it's not because they're necessarily absorbed in their work, but because they are always serving their own interests. And for the sake of our discussion today, we want to consider in what ways does narcissism make its way into the church. Now, the first issue I want to bring up today is through the, how the marriage happens to be devalued. And, of course, worldwide, the institution of marriage is in serious decline. And in America, it's even worse. Right now, less than 50% of American males will be married by 40 years of age, when nearly 80% were married back in 1975. High rates of living together, what our ancestors used to refer to as shacking up, is dominating the landscape. Divorce is also at an all-time high. With For every 100 people that get married, over 40 of them get end up getting divorced. The only reason that that's not a higher number is that so many nowadays just forego marriage altogether and they live together. And of course, that means living with multiple different partners and significant others over the years. And evangelicals are not a whole lot better. In 2014, a study was done and 50% of self-identified evangelicals between what they classify as the primary marrying age, 20 to 39, were married. This was 14% above the average couples in our culture married at the same time. A study conducted just four years later in 2018 showed a decline in the evangelical church of 5%. In just four years, marriage dropped 5% in the evangelical church. 51% were married by 39 years of age compared to 40% in the culture. The point being that the rate of marriage in evangelical circles has decreased in that period of time by 5% when the culture only decreased by 2%. Marriage in the church is in decline. You know, in the 1960s, there was, for every wedding, there was one funeral, basically back and forth. And that was during the Vietnam era where many 
you know, soldiers were dying, and so there should have been a higher number of, of funerals at that time. Today, there's slightly over three weddings for every 10 funerals that occur. Even in our church that highly values marriage, uh, we rarely conduct, you know, marriages compared to how many funerals we're doing. In fact, we're at about a two-to-one pace, two funerals for every one marriage that we officiate. And we have four or five different pastors that have been officiating at all these things, and we still are at about a two-to-one pace. And the biggest thing that I've noticed and shift that I've seen happen with weddings in my 33 years of being a pastor and 10 years before that because I stood up in a lot of friends' weddings. I was in 15 weddings before I became a pastor and attended a number of other weddings. So we're talking 400-plus weddings during that span of time. In those early years, pretty much everybody got married in a church. Nowadays, it's rare that anybody gets married in the church anymore. I never saw the day when I went into ministry that I would be officiating at weddings on pontoon boats or that I would be officiating at weddings in barns. I never th- thought I'd thought that, you know ever thought I'd see the day when I'd go out and buy a nice pair of 140 150 dollar dress slacks trousers uh, for a nice suit and sit on hay bales. Never saw that day coming, but that's what occurs with weddings nowadays. In 2014, uh, 3.9% of professing evangelicals lived together before marriage. In just a handful of years, that number has shot up now to 7%. And even though all the markers point toward the value of marriage, if people get married, they live longer. And I know the joke, I've heard many guys say it, not that you live longer, it just seems like you live longer. I've heard all that over the years, but the reality is you live longer, you have better health, you have more prosperity, you will live a happier life, you will have a more stable home, and it will be a better place for rearing children. And even though all the data and all the facts show that people have benefited greatly from marriage, especially women and children, this doesn't seem to sell people on the value of marriage anymore. Many now believe that your 20s should be devoted to yourself. That's the decade that you live strictly for yourself, which, of course, is the language of a narcissistic culture. And then, if you want to get married after that, that kind of becomes the capstone. And then you can just go for it. But gone is the foundational view of marriage, where you started from the ground up, often starting out pretty poor starting out struggling, living in some dumpy old rental apartment, making do, doing without. Nowadays, starting out with less is a sign that you're not marriage material in the first place. Now it's that you have to have everything that you want, and you have to have experienced everything you wanted to experience, and then you can consider getting married. Marriage used to be about faithfulness to God. It used to be the proper channel for rearing and, 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 and for bearing and raising children. It used to be about a sacred honor between a man and a woman. Now, if you even suggest such a notion with all of the sexual fluidity that's out there, the 180 different forms of sexual expression that are there, 
you know, cisgendered and transsexual and bisexual and homosexual and asexual and, and you know, all the gender fluidity and heteronormative and heterosexual. Don't worry, I'm not going to repeat all 180 of them. I can't even remember many of them. I'm not going to do that. But I, if you say uh, marriage is reserved for a man and a woman in this culture right now, you are expressing hate speech and intoleration. And the cancellation culture and the politically correct culture will come after you in full force. You know, it used to be that marriage between a man and a woman, the bearing of children and having a family was the foundation and the cornerstone of any society. And if you want to see a profound example of that, in the African-American community, for example, in the height of segregation, in the 1940s and the 1950s, 80% of African-Americans in America were married. Then we had the Civil Rights Movement, which was a remarkable movement, which gave the proper respect and equality that African-Americans deserved, and everyone deserved in our culture, and affirmative action took place, and opportunities galore happened for minority peoples in our population. And again, especially for African-American communities. We had the war on poverty. We've had billions upon billions upon billions upon billions of dollars. I can't even count all the billions of dollars that have been thrown at these, uh, the, you know, the struggles of inequality in our culture. But you know what today the figure is? The figure for black marriages stands at 25%. It went from 80% to 25%. And today, African Americans, with all of these other great opportunities, by and large, are doing worse than they were doing in the height of segregation. And of that 25% figure, many of those who are married are living in the suburbs or living in rural America, and they are, they are experiencing, by and large, the middle-class lifestyle. And everybody else, many of them, are growing up being raised in single-parent homes, being raised in poverty, and being raised in many inner-city uh, situations. Folks, marriage is that significant. Now, marriage in America is viewed as self-actualization. What is in it for me? And any notion of marriage being about self-sacrifice is a foreign concept. And by and way, self-sacrifice happens to be a learned behavior. It's not something that all of a sudden, it's a gift you receive at your 30th birthday. Or it's a gift you receive on your 35th birthday. And now all of a sudden, a person is just ready to be married because they've got the gift of self-sacrifice. No, it doesn't work that way. You know, even in evangelical circles, Christians were surveyed recently in the marrying age bracket of 20 to 39, and, uh, you know, they articulate high expectations for marriage, but at the same time, they have very low tolerances for self-sacrifice and for delayed gratification. They want a lot from marriage. They even idealize and hold high views of marriage, but they don't want to give a lot of themselves in marriage. Too many have idolized and idealized marriage while at the same time lowering the bar of their own contribution to it. This is bringing the narcissism of the culture into the church. That marriage, something that God has deemed to be very sacred and very special, very important in the foundation of any society, has become all about 
me. You know, all of the forecasts tell us that there's actually going to be less and less marrying that's going to occur. That's happening worldwide. It's happening all over the world. It's happening significantly in the Western world. In fact, they say that the last bastion of marriage, you know, the, the ones that are going to be holding up the fort, you know, here we are in Alamo, it's going to be that. The last, you know, bastion of marriage culture is going to be the church. That's what all the predictions are. But the church isn't doing as well in this area as it should be because of all of the influence in the culture. You know, young Christian women right now have to decide if they are going to prematurely sleep with a man who shows considerable promise. You know, this guy looks like he might really actually be something pretty good. You know, he shows considerable promise. Does she sleep with that guy and, and, or say no and risk that he'll just go out and find someone else who will? And that young lady will end up being alone. Many young people today have also been inoculated against marriage because they have seen the bad examples of their parents' marriages. And, and that has become the vaccine for them that prevents marriage. They have seen all the fighting, all the arguing, all the squabbles over money, all the miscommunication, all the battles for control, all the belittling and disrespect and the power struggles and all the you know, uh, other issues and struggles that go on in many contemporary marriages. And they're voting with their feet, and they are completely walking away from marriage. Even when young couples do marry, they often have double-income homes. So both spouses come home in the evening extremely exhausted, with very little time and energy for each other. And if you add children to this mix, and especially if one of them has special needs, then the exhaustion and stress level for that marriage goes right through the roof. And so many having observed that now say, why? Why should I marry and suffer like that? So the question I have for you today is how can we, as the body of believers, as the body of Christ, turn this narcissistic view of marriage that comes from the culture, how can we turn that around in the church? Let me offer three suggestions. Number one, how parents live out their marriage makes a big difference. Be a good, godly example of marriage to your children. Show your children the value of commitment, of loyalty, the value of good communication, of love, and of conflict resolution. That you can solve conflicts between each other, and you can solve conflicts within your family. And show them the value of marriage above money, above hobbies, above play, above self. When a marriage relationship is good, it generates enthusiasm from those who observe it. That people can long for something like that. That they can actually have something more in this world. Second thing, let me suggest this. Meeting a marriage partner is more likely to occur when the single person is focused on holiness and not their own loneliness. Jesus said, you're to be holy as I am holy. That is the target. And C.S. Lewis said, you know, if you aim at heaven, you're going to get earth thrown in every time. See, an orientation toward faith and an orientation toward discipleship is the fruitful garden for a healthy marriage to take root. Third thing I would like to suggest is this, and I think it's quite, kind of straightforward, but avoid asking too much 
from your marriage. You know, if you demand too much from your marriage partner or you demand too much from marriage itself, you're going to end up disappointed. You know, Eli Finkel calls this the suffocation model. If you think, you know, it's got to be this knight in shining armor thing all the time and everything has to be all this glory all the time, you're going to suffocate that marriage. Reverend Tim Keller writes, simply put, people expect too much from their marriage partner. Take a chill pill. Just relax and just go through life a little bit. Life happens. That's just the way it is. So in what ways does narcissism make its way into the church? I think, number one, through the devaluing of the sacred institution of marriage. And the church has got to be the place where we take a stand against that because that is a sacred institution in the church. Now, the second way I want to suggest to you that it enters the church is through people's personalities and through people's troubled upbringings. Now, many people are opposed to wearing masks right now during the COVID-19 pandemic, which our governor, Tony Evers, has ordered us to do until the end of September. Whenever we're out in public, we should be putting on a mask. But did you know that people wear figurative masks all the time? Some of them are the people who will never wear a mask out in public. No way, I'm not going to do that but they're wearing false masks all the time. They're hiding their true selves. They're wanting to appear better than what they really are or different than who they really are. So they're wearing these false masks constantly, but some would never wear a literal mask in public. Experts tell us that our heads, our hearts, and our guts are the true pathways that people do this. Now, based upon the unique interplay that happens through our nature, you know, which is our personality, how God is wired up, and through our nurture, how we have been raised in this world. That interplay between nature and nurture often determines what kind of false masks people put on. Thomas Keating writes, as a result of childhood wounds, if we operate based upon our hearts, it becomes all about our image. We will seek to meet our needs through the pathways of esteem and affection. If we are a head type, you know, the people that are, you know, really objective and we're trying to solve this problem and that problem, we will always meet our needs through security and survival. It'll be about us being secure and it's going to be about coming out of this, surviving through this. And if we operate by our gut, which is often focused on resistance and what is wrong and our standard mode of operation is going to be about power. It's going to be about being in control. Now, if you happen to be familiar at all with the Enneagram, Enneagram test, which happens to point to nine different personality traits that people have, experts in narcissism tell us that people that struggle with narcissism, that those personality traits will fall into one of these three classifications, either the head, either the heart, or either the gut. Now, the heart types, those that need affection and, and esteem, uh, you'll see these three personality traits. One happens to be the savior. And the savior is a person when they advance up the leadership pyramid in life toward the top, what happens in their life is humility tends to recede. Listen to this. Humility recedes as leadership advances. And the, this kind of narcissism comes across as benevolent, as kind, selfless, engaging, and available. But these people generally get burned out 
and they often become resentful. They try to come across as, I can do all of this, and you just never do enough. And though they initially seem compassionate, they often end up being cruel and vindictive. Now, the second personality trait that we see under the heart types that, that want esteem and affection, so they put on these false masks of themselves, is the winner. You know, these are really exceptional people, often a workaholic. They live to win, and they're absolutely terrified of failure. They can also easily flip the switch from charm to rage, with charm usually being their public persona. And what becomes tricky in church settings is people often don't see that dark side. So they struggle so much that someone in private might be filled with rage and seething with because all they ever see is this beauty and this charm that comes from people. Winners are the ones who desire excessive admiration and respect. And such character traits and tendencies do not belong in a follower of Jesus Christ. Again, our scripture reading today, think about this and think about what we've been talking about as I read through this. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete, being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit. That isn't the Holy Spirit in that saying there, but one in spirit as believers together and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition. It can't be about yourself. It can't be about you. Can't do that. We're one in spirit. Or don't do anything out of vain conceit for your own attention, your own vanity. Rather, in humility. Even if you ascend, you need to have humility. Humility shouldn't decrease, it should increase, even if you ascend into positions of leadership. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. And not looking to your own interest, but each of you to the interests of others. Marriage isn't about you. You know, life isn't about you. You know, everything isn't about you. The church isn't about you. In your relationships, verse 5, with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. You want to talk about self-sacrifice? He wasn't gifted to Jesus at 33 years of age on the cross. No, no. He left glory. He left eternity. He humbled himself, not only to become a human being, but to death on the cross. And being found in appearance as a man, verse 8 says, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Thomas Merton wrote in his book, No Man is an Island, he says, pride makes us artificial. You want to see people wearing false masks? Well, you're going to see pride like crazy. Pride makes us artificial. And humility makes us real. Jesus was as real and is as real as it comes. Now, too often winners can corral great power in their organizations, and they can yield that power in appropriate ways, often manipulative, devious, and exploitive ways. And if you follow the news recently, you've heard about Dr. Jerry Falwell and his wife Becky's fall from grace. 
Another very public example of some well-known Christians who've given the church a real black eye. Dr. Falwell was the president of the world's largest Christian university, Liberty University, until revelation of his involvement in unseedy, unethical, immoral, and improper behavior came to light. The very kinds of narcissism, frankly, that we're talking about surfacing here in the church this morning. And the hope is always that such people will experience failure and humiliation and learn from it. But the reality is, and the facts on the ground show us, that most do not. They just keep trying to put the false mask on again and again. Now, the third uh, heart type of personality trait that we tend to see when people exercise or explain, you know, explode, you know, reveal narcissism is the individualist. Now, this person tends to be very histrionic, meaning it's all about them. In fact, when people encounter this kind of narcissism in the church, they usually utter under their breath, boy, they're sure making this about themselves. Or why does it always have to be about them? They just mutter that quietly. And when something bad happens to this person who's the individualist, it's terrible. It's so tragic. It's so over the top that they're all about drama and they're all about victimization and they are often envious of others. And people around them are constantly trying to decide if they should engage that person or just simply avoid them all together. Now, I have a standard response when I encounter such high drama about how bad someone has it. And I'm not recommending this to people. I'm not even saying this is the right approach, but this is just how I've learned to cope with this throughout my life. I use it so often that I'm actually quite certain that my children will probably include it in my eulogy when I pass away at my funeral. They may even put it on my gravestone or a footstone at the cemetery. But when I encounter someone who's, oh, it's so terrible and this is so bad and on and on, I say, oh, it, it could have been worse. And they're like, what? what? Yeah, it could have been worse. What do you mean? It could have happened to me. And it just shocks people. Like, because they just say, well, that could have happened to me. And, and it brings attention to the focus on the individual. Now, let's move to the head types. You know, these people are often driven by anxiety when they're trying to solve life's problems. And the first personality trait we see there is the dictator. This is a person who's distant. They come across as superior, as condescending. They tend to watch things from a distance. They're evaluating, they're analyzing, they're gathering data, and then they will use it against people at the right time. Sometimes it'll be down the road, many months or even many years, and people are like, where did that come from? Why didn't you say something sooner? Well, these people are often the very gifted ones in life. These are the early readers in life. They spend a lot of time alone, not necessarily engaging with their peers. And these are often the intellectuals in the church, which are highly prized in the church. But without proper checks and balances, without proper controls in place, these are the kinds of people who can lead others astray. And the hope is that such people will develop relational curiosity as they go through life and grow in their relational skills but that doesn't always happen. Second personality trait that we see showing up under the head types that are driven by anxiety, put on those false masks, even though they're very objective, are the, the ones known as the Hawkeye. These are the hypervigilant, overly sensitive, fearful, rule-conscious, always-on-the-alert people in the church. And these people can tend to be very controlling. It's my way 
or the highway kind of people. And such people often listen carefully for any evidence of criticism and then feel slighted at every turn. And these are the ones who often blame their problems on other people. It might be something they've struggled with for years. They may have struggled with for decades. They might have struggled with this throughout their entire lifetime and then never really done anything to address it, to try to grow in that area spiritually or seek any counseling or therapy or help for that, but it's other people's problems for the breakdowns that they have in life. That is the Hawkeye. Now, the third personality trait that we see under the head types is known as the optimist. You know, the ones who spiritualize everything. Praise God, bless God, go God. You know, everything's spiritualized. Everything's optimistic. Now, a woman named Shanna was battling a very very serious form of cancer, and her husband, Travis, was one of these optimists. He was always saying things to her like, oh, this is all part of God's plan for your life. You know, healing is just around the corner. He was always cheerful and bright. And God has something good in store for you through this. Finally, one day, Shanna had had enough. And she said to him, I don't need your spiritualizing, Travis. I need you. But somehow, this cancer in my life has become all about you all about your anxiety, all about your need to feel that God can fix this. And you are completely missing me in the process. You know, optimists are notorious for skimming across the surface of life, always jumping from one experience to the next and never honoring the present. These people tend to be very impulsive, and they're also really highly susceptible to addictive behaviors. Now let's move to the gut types, the people that tend to resist things. You know, when something is wrong, they tend to be driven and motivated by anger. That's the kind of false mask that they want to put on. And the first personality trait that shows up there is the challenger. And these are the people who respond reactively instead of reflectively. They often have no empathy But boy, do they have a lot of opinions. You'll hear all kinds of opinions. This is the person who barricades their own fragile heart behind a powerful, impenetrable wall. And if you ever try to get close to them or to point any of this out, you will immediately experience their rejection. Now, the second personality trait that we see here is the wallflower. This is the person who's reserved. These are the peacemakers. These are those who are more introverted. They tend to be passive aggressive, quick to tell others, yeah, I'm fine. Everything's great. We don't have to talk anymore. No, no, you're forgiven. Everything's good. But all the while, they are seething on the inside. People around the wallflower are often confused because these folks rarely speak up. But all the while, you can kind of sense and feel their judgment and disappointment in you. Now, the third personality trait we see here in the gut types, these kinds who wear these false masks, is the perfectionist. This is the person who always has to be right. As one person I know says, this is like being married to a lawyer. You cannot have an honest, intimate conversation with them because you're always on trial, and they happen to be the judge and the jury. These are often very smart people, logical people, principled people who bring a lot of good into the world and frankly, a lot of good into the church. But at the same time, they can be condescending, judgmental, 
you know, self-righteous, moralizers. They can be very indignant and abrasive. And I share all of this with you today because I want to show you the many faces of narcissism in the church that can be much more diverse than what we tend to usually think when we think of narcissism. You know, good leaders, healthy leaders, will always display strength and humility. They will constantly observe how people around them experience them. In fact, if you want more from your marriage, if you want more from your children and your family life, if you want more from your church experience, your small group, then what you need to do is ask the people closest to you one simple diagnostic question, and then listen to their responses without interrupting them. And here's the question. This is it. Straightforward, simple. This is as good as it gets. How do you experience me? Ask the question, and then listen to what they say. They might say to you, oh, you're a very caring person, or you're a very loving person, or you're loving to a fault, or you're very emotional, or you really come across as controlling, or you know you don't listen very well, or you never seem to slow down, or you, you know, there's too much drama in your life, or you're a backseat driver. That's one of the things my wife told me this week. That's how she experiences me. She laughed, too, because most of the time I do the driving, but this week we went somewhere, and she drove about 140 miles on that trip, and, you know, there's just too many times when I'm grabbing the old bar, and I'm grabbing the dash, and shaking, and, you know, that kind of stuff, and she's like, you know what? You're a backseat driver. Pay attention to what people say. And be humble as Jesus wants us to be. You know, this is the only way that we can keep from bringing struggles, our struggles with narcissism into the church. You know, in Acts chapter 20, verse 28, the apostle Paul, after his third missionary journey, he knew that tough times were coming for his life. And he knew that tough times were coming for the church. And he was heading to Jerusalem, which was just going to be a pit stop because he was going to get arrested. He was going to appeal to Caesar. He's going to be carted off to Rome. He's going to be imprisoned in Rome. And then tradition tells us he would be beheaded there by the hands of Nero. Well, he called after his third missionary journey and was heading back to Jerusalem to meet the elders partway back from Ephesus. And here's what he told them in Acts 20, 28. Keep watch over yourselves and over the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God that he obtained with the blood of his own son. And though these verses here were written to church leaders, I think they actually apply to all of us because of the priesthood of believers. We are all called, even in Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 16, to grow from spiritual infancy into maturity. In fact, the text there teaches us that we're to grow in every way until we reach our head, Jesus Christ, into maturity. And the phrase in Acts 20, 28, keep watch, is sometimes translated as take heed or pay attention. We're not charged to be paranoid. We're not charged here with perpetual suspicion, but we're charged with attentiveness and awareness. And the imagery here of shepherding is also very helpful because the shepherd didn't stay up every night necessarily all night, but he knew his sheep. He knew their patterns. He knew any erratic behaviors. He knew unusual noises, and he was always right there at a moment's notice. And by the way, you know, experts tell us that the most common churches where narcissism is experienced and where it takes hold is in megachurches, is in independent churches, 
and is in church plants. Because the tendency there is there's less accountability and there's less structures in place and less denominational oversight. In other words, we have to watch over ourselves and we have to watch over others with that same kind of attentiveness. Are we aware of ourselves and how we impact others around us? How others experience us? Are we aware of how others experience us in the church? And are we also, in a healthy way, aware of how others around us impact our lives? I hope so, and I pray so, because that's how we face narcissism in the church, and that's how we prevent it from coming into the church. Would you please join me in prayer? God, our Father, we thank you for these couple of weeks. We've been able to talk about a very important subject And Lord Jesus, you are the example of self-sacrifice. You are the example of giving all and not being self-absorbed. And the culture we look out and see right now is totally into itself. It's all about the individual. It's all about what's in it for me. And God, we know that you've called the church to something greater than that. I pray, God, that we can live our lives recognizing how others experience us in this world. And if it means we've got to change, If it means we've got to take off the false mask, yeah, we can wear the real masks for the good of others and the good of our neighbor and community and public places, but we've got to take off the false masks. God, I pray that we can do that to your honor and glory, and as we're doing this, begin to cherish and value how important marriage truly is. We pray this for your church in Jesus' name, amen.